Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Jeanne Barre, who was the first woman known to history to have circumnavigated the globe. Now, she did this by disguising herself as a bloke aboard a a French exploration voyage that was under the command of a fellow named Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. Uh, It set off in the 1760s, but it took a little longer than you might have expected uh, for uh, Barre to actually complete this circumnavigation. We'll we'll get to exactly why. We'll talk about exactly why. But it, it did take her a little longer than you might think. Anyway, Barre herself, she rose from horrific poverty as the daughter of peasant day labourers. Even at the time, I mean, at the time of her birth in the 1740s, Burgundy was a, a terribly backwards uh, part of France with with poor, you know, these poor peasants being little more than, than serfs, really. But she found her way out of the life that her parents had went through. She became uh, literate. She found work with a noted botanist, a fellow whose name was Philibert Commerson. And the two ended up doing a lot more than work together, let me tell you this. And eventually, Commerson took Barre off on, the, on a voyage with him, and unwittingly helped her to send, unwittingly helped her to send her around the world to f- become the first woman we know of who who did this. Of course, there may be others. We're not, we don't know. The very fact that Barre had to disguise herself as a as a bloke to get aboard the ship gives us the possibility that you know other women had done the same before her and circ- circumnavigated the globe already in secret. But if one did. We don't know about it, and so it's Beret who holds the honour, although, as I mentioned, she certainly doesn't hold any records for speed, uh, with uh, with very good reason, as we'll get to. Anyway, let's get to it here. Let's have a chat about uh, about Jeanne Beret, how she went from being uh, an impoverished and illiterate peasant girl to travelling the wide world as a, as a botanist, and, and so much more in the fullness of time. So off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1740. This is when Jeanne Beret was born in the village of La Comelle in Burgundy, uh, which, as I mentioned, was a, a particularly backwards and, and quite regressive part of pre-revolutionary France. Burgundy, at this point in history, was still essentially feudal. Landowners had almost total dominion over virtually everything within the land that they governed. Uh, the only thing of any value that people of Barret's class had was their labour. That's the only thing they had to sell. The only thing that they had to offer was uh, was, was backbreaking work, usually in, fi- in the fields and agriculture. Um, and every day, Barry's parents, they would get up, they would work for a pitiful, an absolutely pitiful amount, right? Barely enough to keep them alive through the winters when there was enough work to go around. You know, they, they had uh, very poor clothing, very poor food. They often didn't have shoes. They'd have to carve clogs out of wood because they couldn't afford uh, proper leather shoes, anything else like that. And it was a it was a very a very desperate and uh, and and an unfortunate lifestyle, particularly you know in the mid eighteenth century when this sort of thing had, had broadly speaking, you know moved on. Much of Europe had moved on from the feudal days, but parts of France were still under this chokehold. Unfortunately, anyway, young Barret, she's born on the twenty seventh of July, seventeen forty, uh, to a, a couple right whose names were rather confusingly Jean and. Jeanne. So they decided to make things even more difficult by naming their daughter Jeanne as well, right? And then on top of that, her godfather's name was also Jean, and her godmother's name was Lazar. I mean, yeah, it turns out they do have more than two names in France. Amazing. But dad's name is Jean, 
Mum's name is Jeanne. Her name is also Jeanne. It's it's unbelievable, and there's plenty more nonsense where that came came from. Don't you worry about that. Anyway, Barret, she's born into poverty. She and her entire family are illiterate, as were, you know, 80 to 90% of the Burgundian peasant class at this point in history. And unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about her, her childhood and upbringing. She, she probably joined her parents in labouring as soon as she was able to. But uh, sadly, both of her parents actually died when she was a kid. And exactly what happened to her when she was orphaned uh, is a little unclear, but certainly not a good bounce for our mate as a youngster losing both of her parents. She may have been taken in by the church. Uh, she may have been adopted by uh, someone a little more wealthy as a charity case. But whatever the situation was, um, uh, you know, her life definitely in some ways got a lot better because she was taught to read and write and uh, and had a better standard of living now that she wasn't, you know, performing backbreaking labor in a, in a field every day. Um, this may not have been where she became literate. You know, this point is either a, a, a you know a church orphan or a or an an, an adoptee of a, of a wealthier family here. But if it's if this isn't the point at which she came literate, it would have been when she met and began to work for this fellow I mentioned before, Philippa Commerson. Now, details again are lacking as to how exactly these two met. There's a very good reason for why so much of Barre's early years is something of a mystery. We'll come to that in due course. We don't know exactly the circumstances of these two meeting, but Philibert Commerson, right, for his part, he's 13 years older than Barret. He'd moved to a town around 20 kilometres away from Barret's home of La Comelle in 1760. Um, and he worked as a naturalist with a particular interest in, in botany. Uh, and he'd grown himself a little botanical garden out there in the countryside. And sometime between 1760 and 1764, Barret became employed as his housekeeper. So this is, you know... At least a more comfortable life than than working uh, as a as a peasant day labourer here. So Barret has improved her situation a little bit, and uh, it got better for her from that point onwards because again she learned to read and write and uh, and and was experience, experiencing a little bit of upward uh, of social mobility here. But then, in 1762, right, Commerson's wife died in childbirth. And Barret took over the the management of, of his entire house. Basically, his, his all of the affairs that his wife was looking after. Now Barret took over, um, and uh, I guess you know I mentioned before that the two became a little bit more involved with one another, and we don't exactly know how or when their relationship t- took a rather more um, <clears throat> intimate aspect. But we do know that by 1764, Barret was pregnant. So I mean, yeah, get get mum and dad to explain that one to you. I reckon. The problem was, right, even though Barret is Commerce's wife in all but name, that is the important part, in name. She's not his wife. And at this point, you know, in France, uh, having a child out of wedlock was something of a problem for women. So Commerson had to uh, had to uh, pull a couple of strings here. He sorted everything out for this pregnancy with Barret. He, he got a lawyer and, and, and handled all the paperwork to, to make sure that Barret wasn't going to end up in, in too much trouble here. And so once the child was born, it was fostered. Sadly, it died in infancy. So many children did in those times. But a lucky bounce for Beret here, having Commerson able to uh, to pull the strings necessary to make sure that you know she having a child out of wedlock wasn't uh, it, it wasn't going to completely ruin her. So that was good. Around this time as well, Beret moved with Commerson to Paris. Uh, Commerson decided he wanted to move to Paris and uh, and brought Beret with her, and she continued to work as his housekeeper and also as his nurse. Basically, he had pretty poor health. He wasn't in great nick. 
Um, and so she more or less took care of all of his affairs while he was doing his, you know, his botany, his science, whatever else. She would, uh, she was his housekeeper, and she he he was also apparently super super disorganized. So she did a good job of keeping all of his notes and all of his uh, his other materials and everything in order, and basically just look ar- looking after the bloke because he was, uh, I mean, he was a, he was a gifted botanist to be sure, but he. I mean, he needed all the help he could get because he was uh, he, he wasn't in great nick, as I say, and didn't and and didn't have fantastic organisational skills. skills. So uh, so Beret really was a a huge help to him here. And this situation, you know, between the two of them, they're living in uh, living in Paris, working away. It's working pretty well until 1765, when Commerson was invited to be part of this the the expedition I mentioned before, led by Louis Antoine de Bougainville. Now. This was a big deal, right? Bougainville was to lead the first ever French attempt to circumnavigate the globe. The French weren't doing too well on the international stage at this point. They've had their, they've had their asses handed to them in the Seven Years' War, really had their pants pulled down there. So King Louis XV, he wants this expedition to restore some prestige, some lost glory to France. So he's sending Bougainville around the world. Bougainville uh, previously was an admiral. He had fought in the Seven Years' War. And uh, he was charged with organising the voyage and, you know, filling the ships with scientific personnel, naturalists, geographers, all the rest of it. And our mate Commerson, as a, you know, as a, as a reasonably well-respected botanist, was, uh, was chosen to be brought along on this voyage. But I'll tell you this, he wasn't too bloody keen on going. And there are a couple of reasons for this. I already mentioned the fact that his health, you know, is not the best of Nick. Uh, his, his health is failing him a little bit. On top of that, he's disorganised a bit all over the place, right? He's come to rely on Barret's day-to-day help to keep his affairs in order. But the main reason really is just like he, he doesn't want to leave Barret behind, you know? The two of them are very, very close. He's come to rely on her in, in more, you know, in a professional sense and also in a personal sense, and he doesn't want to leave her, uh, you know, ashore while he goes off to sea. Now, Bougainville's offer for Commerson to join this voyage, it did come with an open position for an assistant as well, right? That was part of the offer that he would be able to bring someone along to help him. So, as, you know, you'd think that it wouldn't be a problem. He's got an assistant already in Barret, bring her along, no worries, and and she can help him out as, uh, as as he, you know, goes around the world collecting plants, whatever else. Except that women are expressly and completely forbidden from French naval vessels, right? This is a, an ironclad rule. So Beret can't come, and this explains some of the, the reason that Commerson is so reluctant to get aboard the ship is because that he knows that, you know, because Beret is female, she's not going to be allowed on the ship, and uh, and Commerson is going to have to leave without her. He's not too keen until they hatch a cunning plan to get her aboard as part of the expedition. Barret and Commerson, they decide to disguise Beret as a bloke, and they come up with a cover story that would give Commerson plausible deniability should Barret ever be discovered, so he would avoid punishment for his, you know, for being complicit in this uh, in this plan they put together. They pretend like they didn't know each other before the voyage. They pretend like Commerson has hired this, you know, well, I mean, inverted commas, bloke Barret, uh, specifically for the voyage, specifically as, as as an assistant, right, rather than you know. Letting on the fact that the two have been sleeping each other for years and years, they were going to make it seem like they just met and, and that they didn't have a long acquaintance before this. And in order to uh, sort of sell this little pantomime, Beret only boarded the ship for the first time just as it was getting ready to set sail. Commerson loaded all of his stuff on and got everything ready. And then at the last minute, Beret comes onto the ship and is like, all right, I'm here. Oh, yep, nice to meet you, mate. How are you? Looking forward to working with you, right? To give this impression that she, or I guess as the other sailors see it as he, 
uh, was a last minute addition and uh, and to uh, to avoid you know the crew scrutinizing her too heavily before before the ship set off. Now Barre she dressed herself up uh, she dressed herself up in men's clothing. We're still you know unsure as to whether she made use of a strategically placed rolled up sock to complement the deception. But uh, the the disguise was complete, and she went aboard the ship under the name. You're never going to guess the name she used. That's right, Jean Barret, rather than you know Jean Barret. Uh, make it easy enough, I guess, if Commerson ever actually accidentally used her real name. I suppose it's hard enough to tell them apart at the best of times. So a decent enough plan, I guess. That was uh, that. <laughs> I just like the fact that at some point in her life, not only was she named it after her mum at one point but she started going by her dad's name as well which i think is pretty good anyway anyway the expedition it set off in late 1766 with two ships the bordeaux and the etoile and uh barret and commerson were aboard the etoile and commerson had brought so much gear on board this ship with him that its captain surrendered his cabin to the botanist, right? There was so much stuff that Commerson had brought with him. He needed a bit more space than usual. And so the captain very gallantly gave over his entire cabin uh, to Commerson and Barret. And this suited the pair down to the ground. Let me tell you this. It gave them, first of all, a lot more privacy than they would have had otherwise because they could, you know, cut about in this room without, without having to go past all the sailors and crew and whatever else keeping an eye on them. But most importantly, more than anything else, it wasn't actually the cabin. It was the facilities in the cabin that was crucial in helping uh, Beret maintain this deception because she didn't have to use the shared toilet facilities with the rest of the crew. I mean, I say facilities. <laughs> in case you didn't know, sailors, uh, you know, in old ships like this, they would just go to the front or the, the bow of the ship and hang their asses out over the side and bust a grumpy straight into the deep blue sea. That's what they used to do. Beret, however, she had access to the uh, to the captain's dunny at the rear of the ship, which was obviously in, of great help in keeping her uh, disguise intact away from prying eyes. So, a very lucky bounce there for the pair of them as they get the uh, the captain's cabin to themselves, and uh, the the expedition set off, sets off from France, safe and sound. Off they go across the Atlantic to the south, heading towards Montevideo, which, of course, is, as you may know, is in modern day Uruguay. Now. The voyage did not agree with Commerson, who suffered terrible seasickness as well as having a bung leg, and there really wasn't much for him to do as a botanist as well while they were at sea. So, you know, the pair of them, they spent a lot of time just idle in, in the cabin, right, in the captain's cabin, Beret looking after uh, Commerson as best she could, uh, until they finally landed in Montevideo, uh, where Commerson's leg was still buggered. I mean, he was still getting all sorts of grief from this ulcer he had in his leg. So Barret did the bulk of the heavy lifting. Uh, she gathered plants and specimens and whatever else he needed, cutting about doing all the hard work. And this continued as the voyage, voyage went on, visited the Falkland Islands, and then the expedition sort of turned back on itself, went up north and headed to Rio de Janeiro. And once they got to Rio, Commerson's health was so bad, he actually couldn't leave the ship. He was confined to the ship because of his health, but that didn't stop uh, our mate Beret. Rio, very dangerous place indeed. I mean, the ship's chaplain was murdered shortly after the expedition arrived there, so they really got a, uh, a sense of what uh, of how dangerous the, uh, the city could be. But Beret, she went ashore all the same and gathered more plants for Commerson. And interestingly, I want to point out one of the plants that she got because it's very famous indeed. One of the plants that uh, she was uh, one of the first Europeans to ever, you know, uh, encounter and, uh, and describe properly was a, uh, a thorny flowering vine, a plant that you have probably heard of because it goes by the name of Bougainvillea. 
it's it was named after the bloke in charge of the expedition, this Louis Antoine fella, named after him. And the reason it was classified and named in this way is because of our mate Barret. So think of, uh, you know, the next time you see a Bougainvillea in bloom, think of our mate Jeanne Barret and the fact that she was, as I've said, the first woman to ever circumnavigate the globe. But we're coming to that. Right now, of course, they are still uh, cutting about around South America. And the two of them, they got a lot of uh, a very good botany done as the voyage progressed. Further south down now to Patagonia, which is the southern part of South America, and through the Strait of Magellan, episode 106, get across it. But trouble was brewing. Despite the fact that they are, you know, whenever the ship goes ashore, Barret's off gathering these plants, Commerson's doing what he can to describe, classify, whatever else, uh, all the stuff that they're coming across here. Trouble is brewing on the back end because the ship's doctor, a bloke whose name was Francois Vivet, right? He didn't like Barret or Commerson. And he's, he's obviously been called upon to look after Commerson, whose, ship, whose health is, uh, is, is really not in, not in great shape, as we've said. And he seemed to suspect that something was up between the two of them. He suspected that Barret might not be all that she, or I guess he, from his perspective, appeared to be. Vivet wasn't the only one who suspected something was going on here. And uh, in fact, at one point, Beret was was uh, confronted by other passengers about whether she was a man or a woman. Beret uh, claimed instead to be a eunuch to try to, I guess, explain away things like the higher voice and maybe the way that she appeared. But other people, you know, crew members, passengers, whatever else, they harbored their suspicions about the pair and particularly Beret. Some people thought that she may, you know, she may be a, a, a woman in disguise uh, there was there was some suspicion that the two of the pair of them may be engaged in a homosexual relationship. So there was a cloud hanging over these two when it came to the rest of the uh, the the people aboard this voyage. They uh, they weren't the most well liked duo on the uh, on the ship because people suspected they were harboring a secret. And of course, at this point in history, a secret that certainly was uh, was going to land you in a fair bit of trouble based on the way that this sort of stuff uh, was you know how harshly these sorts of things were viewed back then. Anyway. Under this cloud, they head through to the Pacific and the ships, you know, stopping off here and there as Beret gathering more specimens for Commerson. Um, but despite some of the crew having misgivings about Beret, she, you know, in spite of the the, the whisperings, the mutterings and the rumours that were that, uh, that people sort of, uh, you know, were, were passing to and fro, she did gain a reputation as, uh, I tell you what, as a, as a very tough nut. I'll tell you this, she she was she was strong, she was tenacious, she's dragging heavy loads back to the ship for Commerson by herself, because of course, don't forget, she's no stranger to manual labour. She was the daughter of peasant labourers. This has made her as tough as nails. And, uh, you know, despite their misgivings about her, the, the, the rest of the crew, the other sailors, they... They're impressed by the fact that she can get out and do some pretty tough yakky, some pretty hard yakker on the, uh, you know, every time the ship lands. Anyway, she worked hard not just with the collection of samples, but also with Commerson as he examined and classified them. The bloke, as I said, was messy and disorganized, but Ray kept keeping everything straight for, straight for him. And a lot of important botany was done on this expedition. Commerson named a bunch of plants that were new to science, although he unfortunately never really received the recognition he deserved for being quite a, quite a talented botanist. And nor did Beret, for that matter, as his tireless assistant, making uh, you know making sure that Commerson could do his best work despite, uh, despite his health. So, bit of a shame that these two, uh, you know, didn't really get the credit they deserve uh, for the scientists that they were. But as we'll discuss, of course, Beret ending up with uh, credit of a different sort because of the adventures that she had. Anyway, the expedition continues onwards into and across the Pacific. And it was during the Pacific leg of the journey that things finally began to come apart for Beret 
and and the deception that she was practicing. There isn't a broad historical consensus as to exactly how this happened, but before the voyage had made it all the way across the Pacific, she was unmasked as a woman. Now, there are conflicting reports. The official version from Bougainville himself uh, states that after landing on Tahiti, uh, the locals there immediately recognised Beret as a woman. They weren't taken in by her disguise. Uh, and so she was then discovered to the rest of the crew. There's another version that says that she was caught off guard by other members of the crew while at sea on the ship and uh, and discovered that way. While other accounts from you know others on the ship mentioned different times, different places for the discovery, different methods. And some of them don't even go into detail. There's a fair bit of mystery surrounding the whole business uh, for more than a few reasons. First of all, just the general, I guess, sense of proprietary, right? Some of the people whose journals and diaries we rely on for an account of this weren't necessarily the sort of people who would go into detail about, you know, a scandalous affair like this. One of them was a a member of the nobility. He was a paid passenger that was coming along on this voyage. Uh, his diary doesn't offer a huge amount of insight as to what happened there. Another bloke who kept a diary about the uh, about this uh, this voyage was the doctor, Viv, right, Viva, and he had a fair bit of malice and bias when it came to recording uh, what had taken place and the way that uh, Barret was discovered. So we can't really rely on his account hugely. And the other thing here, right. The the primary uh, source, I guess, the, the primary record that we have of this of this voyage comes from Bougainville himself. And the problem with his account is that he would obviously be very keen to twist the situation so as not to reflect too poorly on him. For months, he's been sailing around with an illegal uh, passenger. You know, a, a woman aboard a, a French ship was strictly forbidden and he's the one in charge of the expedition. He wouldn't want... To catch that kind of heat, he doesn't want to get into trouble. And so his account of it definitely plays down and minimizes uh, you know, the 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 scandal, I guess. So for all of these reasons and a couple of others, we don't have the best sense of exactly what took place when it came to uh to Beret being discovered as a woman. I mean, on top of all of that, not just the records that were kept of the journey itself, Beret and Commerson as well, I mean, forget, don't forget, they had concocted this backstory to absolve Commerson of guilt by minimizing his involvement in the affair. And so even the stuff that they've been saying to these other people who are keeping a record, that really can't be believed properly either. Like they weren't telling the truth to people about the the the, the situation there. So the whole thing is is very, you know, it's very mixed up. There's not a lot of reliable testimony from from even the people who were there. And the bottom line, I guess, is that we'll probably never know exactly what happened with Beret and the way that she was discovered to be a woman by the rest of the crew. There are just too many conflicting reports and too many known falsehoods from so many different people when it comes to unpacking this affair. But the other interesting aspect of of all of the you know of, of these very muddy waters uh, when she was discovered, the side effect of this is that we end up with a much foggier picture about her early life as well. Remember I said that there was a good reason about, you know, to, to explain the mystery surrounding her younger years? Well, of, of course, like when it came out that she was female, all the official records of the incident, they're riddled with lies that she herself told in an effort to protect Commerson. So the whole thing, a big mess, not just her discovery on the ship, but also her backstory, which has been muddied by these conflicting reports that we've got from various people. But we do know that at or around the time the expedition stopped in at Tahiti, it became known that Barret was indeed a woman. Now, this posed a bit of a problem for Bougainville, who, you know, as, as we've said, had to deal with the fact that 
he's got a, a woman on board this, his his French vessel, which is forbidden. It's completely completely forbidden under French law. But Beret remained aboard. She wasn't just tossed off the side or, or abandoned uh, abandoned in Tahiti. Here, she she remained aboard the uh, the expedition with Commerson as the voyage continued through the Dutch East Indies through today's uh, Indonesia, and then travelled into the Indian Ocean. And I'm I'm pleased to say because you know. You thought you sort of think in a situation like this, discovering a woman aboard a ship like this, you you think it could go very badly. You know, it, it could end up uh, end up not being a happy a happy story here for for anyone involved, particularly for Beret. But I'm happy to say that as they're sailing across the Indian Ocean, a win 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 I guess situation presented itself when the voyage reached the Isle de France, which is today known as Mauritius. Right at this point of the journey. Food stores are running quite low aboard the ships. And while, you know, they'd been resupplied in the Dutch East Indies, they'd stopped off and, uh, and gathered what provisions they could. As the expedition arrived at Isle de France, the same problem was beginning to emerge, right? The, it's not as though they were starving or, you know, having to really strictly ration stuff, but Bougainville recognised that uh, they were going to have to tighten the belts at some point here because they didn't have the supplies that they they needed in order to have a comfortable journey. That the the last leg of the of the journey home back to France was not going to be an easy one based on the supplies that they had. So there's that. On top of this, right as they head uh, as they they land on uh, the Isle de France today, as I said, known as Mauritius, as they land there and go ashore. Commerson ran into an old mate of his, a fellow botanist whose name was Pierre Poivre, right? And Pierre Poivre just so happened to be the French governor of the island. So he's really come good, this bloke, an old mate of Commerson's. Now he's the governor of the Isle de France. And he's uh, and, and obviously he's overjoyed to see his old friend. And Poivre actually invited Commerson to come and stay with him, right? With Beret as well. And Bougainville, can't believe his luck. He couldn't agree to this fast enough. Here he is, right, with this, uh, with, with these these people on his aboard his expedition that he's keen as mustard to get rid of. All of a sudden, they've landed at this island. The governor is an old mate of his, inviting him to come and stay there. And Bougainville is like, absolutely, off you go, and uh, you know, I'll send you on your way, and, and nothing further needs to be said. With one stroke. All of these problems are solved. Beret was removed from the expedition without any issues, so you've got so Bougainville's got rid of his, uh, you know, his uh, his forbidden passenger there, right? Food supplies are made a little more sustainable with the departure of two mouths to feed. So Bougainville is absolutely over the moon, and on top of that, Beret and Commerson are safe and sound. Her life's not at, at risk. Nothing's going to happen to her that's uh, that's too terrible now that she is effectively a guest of the governor as Commerson's companion. So it is, as I mentioned, a win-win-win. Everyone walks away from this relatively happy. I'm very pleased to report that, you know, it was a, a good result from what could have been a very dicey situation. And uh, as for Bougainville as well, the rest of the voyage, he continued on, safely arrived back in France on the 16th of March in, uh, in 1769, obviously without Baran Commerson. And uh, to his credit, only seven people lost their lives on the trip out of a crew of 340, which is quite an achievement in those days. Given the dangerous nature of such voyages, Bougainville did a very good job, it has to be said, with this expedition and was widely respected for leading such a successful voyage around the world. He became the first Frenchman and the 14th navigator overall to circumnavigate the planet with this uh, with this successful voyage. So Bougainville uh, did very well uh, indeed in uh, for his part. But we return now to the uh, to the Isle de France and Beret and Commerson. They were now guests of the governor, as I said, very comfortable arrangement for both of them indeed. 
And what did they do? They got back to what they knew best, man. They got back to the botany. They continued the same work that they'd been doing for years. Barret, she kept on working as Commison's assistant and housekeeper, and they even went on a couple more journeys together when uh, Commison's health permitted it. They travelled to places like Bourbon Island, to Madagascar, to gather more plants to study. But, you know, I say the reason, you know, I say when, when his health permitted, and uh, Commison's health was never great. We know that. And... Uh, he continued to be racked with illness after illness, unfortunately, uh, throughout this period while they were living in the, in the Isle de France. And I'm sorry to say that at the, at the relatively young age of 45, in 1773, Commerson died. He succumbed to his illnesses. He'd never been a well bloke and it finally came, became too much for him and he passed away, leaving Barret by herself. But let me tell you this, right? She rose to the occasion admirably. Poivre, the governor, had been recalled to Paris. He was no longer the governor of the Isle of of France. And so Beret had no one to rely on but herself. But she got on the front foot and she took charge of her destiny. Let me tell you this. She opened up a tavern in the city of Port Louis and she continued to live very comfortably indeed, making a nice bit of money for herself with this tavern. Her tavern was very successful, so successful that she could afford afford to pay the steep fine that she was issued in 1773 for selling booze on a Sunday. And she began to then further invest her money in other businesses on the island, making herself a very rich woman in quite a short amount of time. And, and this is quite an achievement, again, particularly for a woman at this point in history, to avoid you know, becoming destitute once all of your, your contacts and, and, and the people that you can rely on kind of disappear from your life. So She's really done a, a, an absolutely terrific job of keeping herself not only afloat, but also turning herself into quite a prosperous businesswoman here in Port, in, uh, in Port Louis. So, you know, she went from gathering plants to gathering riches, really, and did very well for herself in Port Louis. And in, in 1774, she finally got married. She was never married to Thomas, and don't forget, she married a, a French soldier whose name was, you are never going to guess, of course, the bloke who she married, his name was... Jean, yes, Jean de Bonnat. And uh, unusually, especially for the time, unusually it was her and not he that brought all of the wealth to the marriage. This was a very, you know, they were a very wealthy couple, but that was because of her role as a tavern keeper, as a business owner, as, as an entrepreneur and investor. So the two of them here, prosperous, happy, healthy, and, and, and well set up. But Hang on, hang on, hang on, you're saying. I know, I can hear you. I know what you're asking me. She's, you're saying, mate, she's still here on the Isle de France. What's going on? You said that she was the first woman we know to have circumnavigated the globe. She's stuck here on the other side of the world from France. What's she doing? Well, I did say that it took her a bit longer than you'd expect to complete this circumnavigation, didn't I? I mean, after all, spending all those years on the Isle of, uh, Isle of, uh, of France... It was finally most likely in 1775, the year after she got married, that Beret, or I guess Dubonat now to give her her married name, she finally packed up her businesses, she packed up her money, she packed up her husband, and she got on a ship back to France. Now, I'm sorry I can't be more exact about it. We know that by 1776, she was back safe and sound and richer than ever in France, but the exact date and time and circumstances under which the first woman circumnavigated the globe is still not precisely known. But back in France, after having completed this circumnavigation, after having made history as the first woman to ever do so, Barret used her considerable wealth to settle in, in the village of saint olay 
where her husband had grown up. That's where he'd uh, spent his time as, as, a, as a little tacker. And as I said, she's richer than ever back in France. And there's a very good reason for this. Because before he had left on the voyage back in 1766, Commissard had written a will that left a considerable portion of his wealth to Barret. And now she was back. She was able to inherit. She, she duly inherited what was owed to her as part of this, uh, as part of this will that was written by Commissard. And, you know, this really is just, it's a seemingly rare case of one of these things going right. Because after she made this monumental historical achievement, being the first woman to circumnavigate the globe, she came back to France, inherited what was rightfully hers, and then retired to live in health, peace, and prosperity for the rest of her days. In fact, she she really seems to have been very widely respected for her advent- adventures rather than, you know, maligned for having broken the law. In 1785, the government granted her a state pension for her achievements, you know, in, in circumnavigating the globe while assisting Commerson in her work. And after this I- incredible achievement, and, and after her great success as a botanist, as an entrepreneur and as a traveller, I'm very happy to say that Jeanne Barret lived happily ever after. She spent the rest of her days in saint Olay with her husband until she finally died in 1807 at the age of 67. Beret probably didn't set out to make history as the first woman known to have circumnavigated the globe, but I tell you this, she is richly deserving of the honour all the same. She worked tirelessly to support Commerson's botanical work and proved herself more than capable of life at sea, You know, which I guess very clearly demonstrates the, the foolishness of, of the laws forbidding women from, from crewing ships at this point. Now, it is worth remembering, of course, that, that other unknown women may have disguised themselves and, and, and been aboard one of the 13 voyages that circumnavigated the globe before Bergenville's, and if so, they did such a good job of hiding themselves that even history doesn't know about them. But as it stands, the distinction of being the first woman to circumnavigate the planet still belongs to our good mate, Jeanne Barret. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Jeanne Barret, the the first woman ever to circumnavigate the globe. And I'm very pleased that we get to, you know, to to bring the ship home to port in in both a figurative and a literal sense with this happy ending that uh, Jeanne Barret ended up with it. You know, so often these stories of of, of historical women, they're plagued with, uh, with, with, you know, all sorts of horrific and terrible things that, that, that went on, the stuff that women had to suffer through uh, throughout, the, throughout the broad you know, history of our civilization. So it is a, a very ref- a refreshing change of pace that uh, things ended up coming good for Beret and, uh, and her, her triumph isn't marred by any great tragedy or anything else like that. And, and her story is ultimately a happy one. So I do hope you enjoyed uh, uh, getting across her story. I certainly uh, enjoyed researching and having a look at it. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this dumb podcast. All the... Uh, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now. To end the show, halfhousehistory.net, uh, contact form there. Of course, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can find a link to the feed so you can subscribe on your uh, device of choice at anchor.fm slash halfhousehistory. But uh, the main website for the show, halfhousehistory.net, of course. Um, uh, there is still a very limited amount of merch available. Uh, I hopefully will have uh, further plans to share with people uh, in the coming weeks and months about new merch um, and 
Uh, of course, if you want to support the show in the meantime, patreon.com slash half history is the best way to do that. You can gain access to all sorts of uh, nonsense, behind the scenes stuff, uncut episodes, uh, scripts and all that sort of thing if you uh, if you want that. I-, I will say as well, like the scripts, uh, I mean, they're fine. They're not great. They're okay. But they they would be useful. I've had a couple of listeners point out that they are actually useful kind of study guides. If there is a, you know, I'm not saying that definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's necessarily worth it to... Uh, I'm not putting them on sale or anything else like that. I don't think that they're necessarily worth that. But it is the sort of thing, if you know, maybe you're a student of history and you want some relatively digestible notes made on any of the topics. I mean, it goes back, I think I've got the notes on Patreon back to like episode. I mean, there's at least, there's about a hundred of them there, I reckon. And if you need others, I mean, you can get in touch with me. It's fine. But, uh, you know, maybe a potentially useful resource uh, for anyone who, you know, if you really need to know about, I don't know, the history of the potato. I've got notes for you if you need it. There, you can grab them on Patreon. Of course, one of the one of the one of the benefits you get from uh, being a Patreon supporter. Anyway, that's enough of that. Um, uh, we'll be back next week, of course, with more nonsense and half our history. And I hope to have your company then. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. We have talked. I mean, you know, Beret and and Commerson, both uh, both relatively famous botanists, and uh, we've got a botany related question here that comes to us from Reddit from Iron Oxidy, who asks if birds aren't plants. Explain bird seed.